0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello and welcome to CNN. I'm Rahel Solomon. We begin with the latest from Turkey and Syria, the death toll from Monday's devastating earthquake, now above 22,000 families and rescuers clinging to hope that survivors can still be found after days buried in the rubble. And as the days drag on, the humanitarian crisis grows. Thousands of families displaced and left with nothing need just about everything. Still, though, there are miraculous stories of survival. Overnight, two teenage sisters pulled from the rubble about 100 hours after the quake and powerful images of a family of six, including two parents And their four children rescued from their collapsed first floor home after 102 hours. Their brother and son watching from the sidelines tearful and thankful for their survival. The sheer scale of the disaster, unimaginable. The Turkish city of Antakya like a ghost town as survivors face a new reality and struggle amid tough conditions. CNN's Nick Payton-Walsh has this report.
2: 80 hours in and in Antakya any sign of hope will do. Rescuers rush in. These buildings' first three floors have collapsed down but left their upper floors upright. And little Yamur, aged eight, is inside, possibly alive. By the time they get her to the ambulance though, it's clear they were too late. Her mother, outside, only able to watch her everything vanish. My little one, she says, don't take her, don't let her get lost. Antakya's streets, a chilling patchwork of what's left standing and what's not left. In its ruins, anxious crowds of rescuers and locals thinking They heard someone alive, demanding silence so they can listen again. Down here is Ahmed, the rescuers say, alert, responsive, a Syrian refugee. The building next to him barely hanging on at an angle. Their work desperately wishing it were quicker. Across the city, hell has landed. This man guarding his neighbour's books with his father-in-law next to the body of his mother-in-law. He gestures behind him to where he once lived. It's kind of hard to get your head around just how inhabitable a city of this size has become so fast. Literally every street you walk down has a scene like this and the road's out while they're jammed full of people trying to get away to safety because the building still could collapse and the road's in rescuers, people even trying to get their possessions back. And those who've stayed, lining every part of the green spaces we can find with tents to try and stay warm. The trees, perhaps in just enough space away from buildings that could crumble. A new world for children, smiling, neither oblivious nor somehow shaken too hard. Dusk and the smoke of fires settles with the dust to choke the streets. But back where we were an hour earlier, there has been relief. Ahmed was saved, pulled out from the hole, his family perhaps still inside. The medics keep asking him, did you hear any signs of life from them? No, he says. They say he cannot wait for them, that he must be treated after 86 hours entombed. The weight of grief, even as he is saved. His friend, Jamil, was pulled from the rubble earlier. I have been given life again, he says. I saw death before my eyes. I saw my own grave. The same twist of fate here. There have been noises deep inside the bottom of what was once an apartment block. First, out comes one man, Suleiman, age 21. The frantic work of medics here suggesting he did not make it. I think it's the impossibility of hope here that somebody could emerge after all this time alive from the wreckage that's driving this large crowd of rescuers. The most intense work done by hand right at the front of the rubble there. Out comes a four-year-old boy named Alpazlan, rescuers said. alive seen trying even to take off his oxygen mask. His father, Tolga, who follows shortly, does not seem to move. 89 hours in the rubble that both tore a world apart but found enough mercy to spare its youngest.
1: And Salma Abdelaziz joins me now live from Istanbul. Salma, of course, we love to hear these stories of survival and rescue. Just incredible. Five days into this quake. But help put this in context for us in terms of, I imagine, for every incredible, miraculous story of a rescue being made, there must be many more where it's a recovery.
3: That's absolutely right. And that's why those stories of survival are really becoming Rallying cries in some ways for many people across Turkey. There are those glimmers of hope, those little bits of survival that are really keeping people going. They keep playing these images on television of people still being pulled out. And as you said, this is a rare and beautiful exception when we see it. But overwhelmingly all across that quake zone, people are simply waiting to get the bodies of their loved ones and prepare to bury them, prepare to lay them to rest. They just want to give them that final dignity of putting them in the ground. And they're pleading with authorities, really, who are now stretched thin and overwhelmed to retrieve these bodies, again, from under the rubble, many, many Thousands there, entire families wiped out. Uh, I just want to give you a number, an update here on how the Turkish authorities are handling the other part of this crisis, of course, which is the homeless, right? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in fact, now made homeless, whether that is because their homes have collapsed or they're simply too scared to live in them. Now they're on the streets, Uh, Turkish authorities saying they've been able to evacuate just over 75 people out of this quake zone into areas of relative safety. I say 75,000, it sounds like a big number, but that is only a tiny fraction of the people who need help immediately. We heard just recently from President Erdogan, who has vowed to pay the rent of any victims for a year. He said, we're going to cover your rent if you need to stay in an apartment. We also have hotels. The uh, authorities are also setting up tents in these quake zones. We understand 140,000 tents have been shipped in. President Erdogan also making this remarkable promise to rebuild the entire area in just a year. I think it's hard to fathom that that could take place. But very much right now, he is a president who is facing the anguish and grief of his own people. And they are demanding answers. How was there so much loss of life? When you look at the video of the quake zone, when you look at the images of those buildings completely pancaked, completely collapsed, questions are being raised. Were these buildings safe enough to live in? Could lives have been saved? President Erdogan trying to address those questions and trying to meet the demands of hundreds of thousands right now who need help.
1: Look, Salma, as you rightly pointed out there, questions grow, frustration grows, anger grows. Help me understand moving forward. Obviously, the top priority now is still this recovery mission, still looking for survivors. Help me understand for the buildings that are still standing, the type of assessments that will be necessary to understand and fully appreciate whether they're even safe enough for people to go back into.
3: Look, for the people who live in those buildings and have abandoned them for now, they are not going to take any authorities' word at this time. They have simply refused to go back inside these houses. They have seen the horror themselves firsthand, and they're too scared to go back inside. They'd rather sleep in the cold with no food, no fuel, than risk the possibility of a building collapsing. There is so much here for the Turkish authorities to sort out. That, that question you're asking, that's the same question being asked on the ground, and I do not think we have answers here yet. There are multiple operations going on here, right? You have the operation to pull out survivors. Remarkably, we are still seeing people being pulled out alive. That is ongoing. Then there's the operation to retrieve bodies. Remember, we have countless bodies under uh, these buildings. That's one operation. Then there's the other operation to try to find shelter for hundreds of thousands of people who have been made homeless in the very bitter winter cold. And then there's the operation to try to provide the long-term support for this human humanitarian crisis. There is a great deal going on here and only entering the fifth day again of this catastrophe. There are still so many things that need to be sorted out by the Turkish government and you really sense that anger, not just in the earthquake zone, but all across Turkey.
1: A long road ahead. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you. Now to the war in Ukraine, Russia firing a wave of missiles into Ukraine, causing power outages across the country. Now, this comes a day after Ukrainian President Zelensky met with European leaders seeking more weapons. Today, the Ukrainian government has officially asked the Netherlands to send F-16 fighter jets. David McKenzie is live in Kiev with the latest. So, David, Ukraine now officially making this request. What do we know about the response from the Netherlands and, and what happens next?
4: Well, it's an interesting response, Rahel, and it's certainly something that uh, President Zelensky has been pushing very hard in recent days with his diplomatic push in the UK and uh, mainland Europe to uh, try and persuade the allies in Europe and the U.S. to get fighter jets, particularly the F-16 U.S. fighter jets, into the theater of war. What is significant about uh, the Netherlands is that they are decommissioning their F-16 program that maybe opens a door for Ukraine to access those fighter jets. But uh, the Netherlands and other allies are holding back for now on providing Ukraine with these sophisticated weapon systems. They say in part because uh, that it's a complex system. The F-16 is not just the plane. You need the support. You need the training. To get them in the air here in ukraine but not ruling it out according to uh, an affiliate of CNN uh, who spoke to the defense minister there he said all of these requests by ukraine are taken very seriously uh, but it is significant that they're not saying no and up until now even with weapons systems that seem inconceivable at the very start of this war around a year ago, uh, Ukraine and uh, President Zelensky have been very persuasive in getting allies to give them what they want. But for now, it doesn't appear it's going to be any time soon, but the door is still open. realm. Well, it's an
1: interesting point, David, right, because it's a similar thing we heard from some of the Western nations about these modern tanks, these Western tanks, that they were complex, uh, complex mechanisms and that they needed a lot of training. And yet we've seen what's happened with that. Uh, David, what more can you tell us about these attacks in the city of Zaporizhia and the damage there?
4: Well, it's all throughout the country. In fact, that these attacks happen in the east, the south, and the west, uh, and even attempts here in the in the capital. This wave of missiles, probably the most significant. Uh, Attempted attacks of its kind for several weeks from the sea, from the air and land, according to Ukrainian officials and specifically the Air Force. Many of these missiles uh, say the Air Force uh, were in fact downed by air defense systems. That's a significant win. They say more than 70 were fired at this um, country and uh, more than 60 were in fact brought down, not reaching their target. But there were several strikes on energy infrastructure. And this has been a pattern, Rahel, of the Uh, Russians to target civilian infrastructure, according to the Ukrainians, that has done significant damage. Overall, it's been pretty remarkable that they've managed to keep the power on in large parts of of the country. And you ask the question, what's the impact? Well, they've had to have planned outages to deal with potential shortfalls as well as emergency outages in areas where coal and thermal, uh, thermal and uh, hydro plants might, might have been struck. At this stage, uh, the Ukrainians have been successful in limiting the damage today, but it does point to this strategy to try and cripple the grid uh, of the Russians continuing. right?
1: Look, David, I think you make a great point that it is remarkable that Ukraine has been able to withstand this this very cold winter in the midst of these attacks. And I think it really speaks to the sacrifices that Ukrainians are making in the midst of this war. David McKenzie, thank you. And oil prices, meantime, jumping. Take a look at this. Brent crude up about 1.4 percent. WTI up about 1.3 percent. This is after Russia said that it would cut production by 500,000 barrels a day in March. Let's bring in Scott McClain with more on why this is happening. Scott, of course, this comes in the midst of sanctions on Russia. Explain to us what's happening here in the oil market.
5: Yeah, so Russia, Rahel, is not doing this because anybody told them to do it. Case in point, OPEC+, Plus, which Russia is a part of, recently decided to keep their production levels in place. And so Russia is essentially doing this unilaterally, cutting half a million barrels per day, or about 5% of its overall output or its overall production. This was announced by the Russian Deputy Prime Minister, Alexander Novak, who said that Uh, who blamed the Western price cap on Russian crude oil, Russian diesel, and other uh, petrochemical products or or Russian hydrocarbon products um, for essentially artificially interfering with the normal functioning of the market. He also, in his words, called it a continuation of the destructive energy policy of the West. He said that the production cut here will help to restore the normal functioning of the market. Otherwise, you could see a decrease in investment in the oil sector in his country. Of course, because in part, in large part, because the EU effectively, with few exceptions, banned Russian crude oil coming in at least by ship, Russian oil prices have taken a real dive. In normal times before the war, Russian crude oil, Russian uh, Urals crude and Brent crude from the UK typically trade in lockstep Give or take a few cents, but since the war began, they've really started to diverge. Now, Russian crude oil regularly sells at a discount of more than 30% compared to Brent. And even if this production uh, cut does succeed in pushing the price up, which is obviously the goal here, it still has the price cap to contend with, which, remember, it's not imposed on countries, it's imposed on western shipping and insurance companies so even third-party countries who maybe don't care about the war in ukraine don't care how much they're paying for russian oil even they will find it very difficult to pay more than 60 dollars per barrel for russian crude oil which is what that price cap is actually set at of course that's the goal here for europe and for the west to try to choke russia off of its funding for the war in ukraine and in some ways it succeeded the russian budget deficit hit 45 billion dollars last year, though in other ways, maybe it's not so clear considering the IMF is forecasting that the Russian economy will grow ever so slightly this year. And of course, as we saw this morning, how the missiles continue to fly over Ukraine.
1: That IMF projection, uh, an upgrade from what I had previously expected. Scott McLean, thank you. Chinese President Xi Jinping may not have known about that spy balloon that was shot down by the U.S. military over the Atlantic Ocean. That, according to a U.S. assessment, that was briefed to lawmakers. Meanwhile, Beijing calling a U.S. House resolution condemning the spy balloon a political maneuver. Well, Ripley has more now from Taipei.
6: Fiery new rhetoric from China escalating the suspected spy balloon scandal. Beijing blasting President Joe Biden for criticizing Chinese President Xi Jinping. Can you think of any other world leader who trade places with Xi Jinping? Not a joke. Can you think of any? Who would? I can't think of one. This man has enormous problems. China says Biden's remarks are highly irresponsible and violate basic diplomatic protocols. Problems complicated by a growing pile of evidence. Pieces of the downed balloon pulled from the sea off the Carolina coast. Proof, the Pentagon says, China's weather balloon claim is nothing but hot air. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman says, I have no knowledge about America's claim that this balloon is part of a fleet. I think it could be part of the information and public opinion war that the U.S. is waging against China. The international community can see clearly who's the world's largest espionage and surveillance country. I can assure you this was not for civilian purposes. That, that is, we are 100% clear about that.
3: There's that.
6: The U.S. linked the balloon to a vast Chinese military surveillance program, a growing list of global balloon sightings and questions. The U.S. believes many balloons are launched from China's Hainan Island, where a U.S. spy plane made an emergency landing in 2001. China took three months to investigate before returning the plane in pieces. Now China is attacking the U.S. for shooting down its balloon, and sending the pieces to an FBI lab. The spokesman says the U.S. insists on using force to attack Chinese unmanned civilian airships, which seriously violates international practice and sets a horrible precedent. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin asked for a phone call with China's defense minister. Beijing bluntly declined. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei.
1: And straight ahead, more on our top story, the desperate efforts of rescue workers amid destruction in Syria and Turkey. We hear from UNICEF live from the Syrian capital. And in other news, it is one of the biggest events on the American calendar. Whether you are a sports fan, a music lover or a business looking to cash in, we count down to the Super Bowl. Welcome back to CNN. We want to take you to these live pictures. This is southern Turkey. It's an image that's become all too common over the last five days. We are watching heavy equipment, rescue workers, rubble, searching, searching the rubble, searching the damage, searching for survivors, searching for whomever they can still find. It's a site that's become all too common five days after this tragedy. Rescue there becoming recovery and hope turning into heartbreak five days after this devastating earthquake in Turkey and northern Syria. And we now know that more than 22,000 people have been killed. The World Food Program calling for more access, especially to Syria, saying aid stocks are being quickly exhausted. UNICEF says that its immediate focus in Syria is to ensure children and families have access to clean drinking water and sanitation, and that separated and unidentified children can be reunited with their families as soon as possible. Angela Kearney is the UNICEF representative in Syria, and she joins us from Damascus. Angela, thank you for being on the program today. Thank you. So you say clean drinking water and sanitation are the biggest priorities right now in Syria. What's the biggest challenge to getting that aid to the people who need it most?
7: I think mostly money. It's actually we have uh, trucks available to truck very quickly clean drinking water. Also on the commercial market, there's still a lot of bottled water that we can put in. It's actually people who are living in shelters, so in schools or mosques or churches, and those were not built to have a lot of people in a a small space. Middle of winter, people are there and they really uh, don't have showers, they don't have enough toilets for the number of people there. So as well as clean drinking water, it's also sanitation needs. And many of the pipes um, the, the sewage pipes have leaked into the water pipes, so it's about water quality, it's about chlorine, all of those things together. And so getting that clean drinking water, the needs are great and that's just one of the many priorities.
1: Mm. Help me understand, because as we know that Syria was already dealing with a cholera outbreak, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, cholera is easily treatable, but time is of the essence in terms of treating cholera. Help me understand how urgently uh, these materials, the clean water, the clean sanitation, is necessary.
7: Uh, I mean, very necessary. The only good thing is that in the cold weather, it does reduce the number of cases. And, of course, we'll have spring around the corner. But we actually did manage to vaccinate 90% of people that we thought were the big target just a couple of months ago with one uh, cholera vaccine. But right now, you just get one uh, dose of diarrhoea, not even cholera, in those shelters, which are schools and people tight uh, tightly packed inside mums and dads and grandparents and children all together so it's really prevention that is much better than the treatment so if we can prevent mm. it by um, as we say clean drinking water but soap by disposing of all of that rubbish I think that that would be the best thing it's really prevention and that's what we're working really hard on and that also involves messages using the kids to pass on messages to their parents washing your hand after you've beat hands after you've been to the bathroom it's simple things like that can really save lives.
1: Mm, That's really important context. And Angela, you say the biggest thing right now is money. Is the issue that the money hasn't been raised yet or the, the issue that the money hasn't come into
7: the country yet? What's the bigger issue in terms of getting the money to where it's needed? No, we're incredibly grateful, and the Syrian people have been amazing to each other. There's convoys on the road now from Damascus to Aleppo and Latakia. Many, many people are giving. It's just we need to buy things, sometimes procure locally. Sometimes we have a massive warehouse in Copenhagen. I mean, it's just competing with other emergencies around the world as well. There's no delay in in getting the money here. It's just that we are asking the guests of other countries to please help us in this emergency. And as we can see, you are in
1: Damascus. So you are within Syria. How about access from outside of Syria? Is
7: that improving in terms of
1: uh, outside access, being able to get into the country?
7: I mean, the good news, what yesterday was that there were six uh, trucks able to get in from Turkey into northwest Syria, and I hope that that road, it was it was blocked with snow and with destruction, and I believe that they're, they're really pushing those convoys in faster, as well as that aid is coming in. UNICEF's just received a plane load from Dubai of tents and tarpaulins and mats and blankets. We're just offloading it at the airport as we speak. So there is a real sense of urgency. The UNICEF does not do this alone. We do it with other UN agencies, we do it with international NGOs, we do it with anybody. And so I think it's the joint effort together. And a US Fund USA have been doing amazing fundraising for us. I think mm. one of the things I'm asking people is to trust us that we know uh, how to get the aid to the people. We've been here before, we've always been here, we'll stay here, and so the accountability to make sure that it gets to the, for us, the children and the families, we, we hope and we believe that we've got the right systems for that.
1: Hmm, Relying on local coordination, relying on the people who know the the communities best. How long of a process do you think this will be? This is, of course, early days. We're only five days into this. But how how long do you think this process will be in terms of, um, you know, and obviously this was a tragedy even before this natural
7: disaster. How long do you think this will be? And it'll be years, really, in in terms of the destruction. I mean, there's water tanks down in in, in the most affected areas. There's pipes that are broken. But also just a simple thing where they're needing to use the schools for shelters for people. So people whose apartment blocks were either crushed to the ground and there were deaths in that area or otherwise have got cracks and are unsafe or waiting engineer's reports. There's um, thousands and thousands of people in these shelters When it then comes time for them to find alternative accommodation and working on that very quickly, those schools will need some rehabilitation, will need to get exercise books and pencils in there as well as desks and chairs. It needs cleanliness. It'll be absolutely weeks in this emergency phase and then months. The destruction in, in the urban areas does mean that it's a lot of people in a very tiny space. And a a country and a people that were really struggling with poverty here. And now we also have the global economic crisis. So there's just so many things. And added to that, it's winter. And so it's really cold for people outside. So we have to get them into shelters very quickly. Mm, So much need. Angela Kearney, thank
1: you for being on the program and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Welcome back, and we return to Turkey and Syria and the monumental task of getting aid to survivors. The devastation brought by Monday's earthquake has caused thousands of families to be displaced. Turkish President Erdogan says that the Turkish government will pay the rent of citizens for one year if they do not wish to stay in tents. The humanitarian crisis growing and concerns remain over reaching Syria. One UN official says people in Turkey and Syria need, quote, more of absolutely everything. Offers of assistance from around the world continue to pour in. Meantime, on Thursday, the United States announced $85 million in urgent humanitarian aid for life-saving assistance in the region. Joining me now is Vedant Patel. He is the principal deputy spokesperson for the U.S. State Department. Vedant, thank you for being on the program today.
8: Thank you so much for having me.
1: $85 million in aid. Help us understand what does that entail and how quickly do you think it will reach the people who need it most?
8: First and foremost, let me just take this opportunity to say on behalf of the State Department in the United States, our thoughts are with the Turkish uh, and Syrian people right now in what is a very devastating and challenging time. Uh, but since this tragic earthquake on Monday, the United States has uh, pursued a number of lines of effort, including this new $85 million announcement uh, to ensure that humanitarian aid and important assistance is getting to the people that need it. Uh, what it looks like, uh, we've got uh, certain rescue teams on the ground. We've got disaster assistance and response teams on the ground paramedics and engineers with specialized equipment, uh, sniffing canines, uh, food, shelter, water, things like that. Uh, The big key now is doing everything we can and pursuing every line of effort to ensure uh, that we can help find people who might still be stuck in the rubble uh, and things of that nature. And so the United States is going to continue to pursue those lines of efforts uh, aggressively.
1: What can you tell us about how quickly aid is being allowed into the country? Is access still a problem or are you finding that the roads of of transportation are actually open?
8: It is our hope that uh, humanitarian aid can transist and transcend uh, the border between Turkey and Syria as swiftly and as expeditiously as possible. We just had word yesterday that a UN convoy with important uh, equipment and humanitarian aid uh, was able to successfully cross uh, from Turkey into Syria. That is, of course, a a positive uh, and welcome development. And uh, we continue to believe that uh, we need to do everything we can to ensure that aid can flow freely Um, and, and as quickly as possible.
1: And speaking of aid flowing freely, in terms of sanctions, how does that impact, if at all, humanitarian aid?
8: Well, I think an important thing to remember here in the context of Syria, uh, the United States has been the single largest humanitarian aid provider to the Syrian people since the Syrian war started, nearly $15 billion. Uh, And since Monday, since the devastating earthquake on Monday, uh, U.S.-funded humanitarian partners have been operating in Syria uh, and responding to this earthquake. The White Helmets, which is a uh, U.S.-supported group, a group that we've worked with closely before, UN and NGO partners have been providing food, water, and shelter. And I think it's an important thing to remember that U.S. sanctions policy is not an obstacle to this. We have been very clear from the get-go that uh, our sanctions do not target humanitarian aid. And in fact, over the course of the past many years, we have worked with entities and authorizers and have authorizations in place to ensure that humanitarian aid and humanitarian access can flow freely uh, while sanctions remain in place to hold the Assad regime accountable.
1: Well, and to that point, I mean, Vadant, from your perspective, what is the biggest obstacle in terms of access? Is it the regime of al Assad? Is it the uh, opposition groups? Or is it just the sheer destruction to infrastructure there in terms of physically getting aid into the country?
8: Uh, I'm not going to uh, pinpoint it one way or the other. There, of course, this is a tragic incident that just took place on Monday. Uh, You and I have both seen the images of devastation uh, in the region. There are a lot of obstacles, uh, uh, but that is why the United States uh, jumped into action and uh, is continuing to pursue many lines of efforts uh, to do everything we can to support the people of Turkey uh, and the people of Syria. President Biden had the opportunity to speak with President Erdogan, uh, Secretary Blinken had the opportunity to speak with Foreign Minister Chavashoglu. Uh, we are in close touch with our counterparts and doing everything we can uh, to ensure that humanitarian aid gets to the people that needs it. Uh, we're paying very close attention and we will continue to pursue many lines of efforts to ensure that we can do this.
1: Ladan mm-hmm. um, Patel, thank you for being on the program. He is the principal deputy spokesperson for the U.S. State Department.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: And coming up, a CNN exclusive, how leaked Chinese police files are giving answers to Uyghur Muslims about their missing family members. That's coming up next. Welcome back. After years without contact, several exiled ethnic Uyghurs are learning what's happened to their families. It's thanks to a new online tool that allows the public to search through a massive trove of hacked documents. The information showing the scope of the surveillance apparatus that Beijing uses to monitor its Uyghur population in Xinjiang. CNN's Ivan Watson has this exclusive report.
9: The search for missing loved ones.
8: I am uh, putting
4: in my uh, younger sister's uh, ID number.
9: Abduwali Ayub is a human rights activist and ethnic Uyghur from China's Xinjiang region. From exile in Norway, he looks for the first time at a Chinese police file from 2017 on his sister, Sajida.
6: It's really in detail.
9: He hasn't spoken to her in years.
4: She got arrested September 6th, sent to education camp, stayed there about a month, and then sent her to detention center and sentenced 11 years.
9: The Chinese police file states that Sajida Ayup is a two-faced or treasonous government official. Police apparently flagged the high school geography teacher because of ties to her brother, an outspoken critic once jailed by the Chinese government. The government document told me
4: that, yes, it is. It is related to you and it is your your fault.
9: Ayub got early access to this new search engine. It's linked to tens of thousands of files that were hacked from police computers
4: in Xinjiang. It's 830,000 different people are in these files and it's clear from the files that tens of thousands of them are detained
9: adrian zenz a researcher with the victims of communism memorial foundation first released some of the hacked police files last year the chinese government has not denied their authenticity but state media has slammed his analysis of the data calling it disinformation Beijing denies it committed human rights abuses while detaining up to two million ethnic Uyghurs and other minority groups in re-education camps in Xinjiang. A campaign of mass repression, the U.S. government claims amounts to genocide. Zens launched the search engine, hoping it will provide the Uyghur diaspora information about family members back home in Xinjiang. The black hole is the most terrifying thing.
4: And I think that's part of why the Chinese state creates this black hole. It's the most terrifying thing that can be done, that you don't even know the fate of a loved one is they even alive or dead.
9: Mama John Juma remembers June 12, 2006, the last time he saw his family. I remember that day. I was passing
10: the airport checkpoint, and they were waving, and I saw them. Their image is still in my mind, you know? The picture, it comes to me sometimes. So that's the last time I saw my brothers.
9: Juma is now a journalist with Radio Free Asia's Uyghur Language Service in Washington, D.C., which Beijing labels as an anti-China propaganda organization. Unable to go home for fear of arrest and unwilling to even call his relatives for fear they could then be punished.
10: Let's see. I'm going to search one of my brothers.
9: So now he can only look at their police files. Did the files confirm the detention of any of your loved ones?
10: Yes, uh, detention of my, uh, three of my brothers, yes. And then I found one of my brother's pictures in that, uh,
9: in that, in that file. A mugshot of his younger brother, Isajan, taken in detention. How did he look? He looked, uh, he lost his soul.
10: It gives you a feeling of guilt, you know, because, because of that they're tied to you and they're persecuted. It's, it's not really kind of a uh, easy feeling to digest.
9: A photo of Juma and his brothers in happier times.
10: I wish I could go back to this moment, you know. I wish I could go back to this moment.
9: Today, Juma is left piecing together what happened to his family through the Chinese police files. And the level of detail, even on people who were never accused of crimes, is chilling.
10: Fingerprints, DNA samples, voice samples, profile pictures, iris scans these are the biometric information they collected on my mother. When you look at it, so you see this perfect example of a uh, full-blown surveillance state.
9: Half a world away in Adelaide, Australia, Marhaba Yaqub Salai just found a police file for her 17-year-old nephew.
10: That's insane, that's, that's terrible. No, I didn't expect that.
9: The file states that in 2017, when the boy was only 12, police labeled him Category 2, a highly suspicious accomplice of a public security or terrorism case. And that's not all.
10: Yeah, this is my niece.
9: Your niece has a police file.
10: No way.
9: The file claims that by the age of 15, Marhaba's niece traveled extensively, something her aunt denies.
10: Argelia, Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Dubai, Egypt, Pakistan no way. Is that mean is that mean they are saying that she has been in this country?
9: So far, neither child has been detained, but Saleh worries for their future. Their mother, Maila, her sister, has already been in and out of detention for years, accused of financing terrorism for wiring money to her parents in Australia to help buy a house. If you could tell them something, what would you like to tell them?
10: I am so sorry what's happening to them, and I'm so sorry what's happening to their mother and my sister. I'm sorry I can't help them. They deserve so much better than this. They are innocent.
9: The more than 800,000 police profiles only provide a partial snapshot of the broader system of surveillance and repression in Xinjiang. They don't alleviate the survivor's guilt shared by many relatives living abroad, desperate to learn anything about their loved ones back in China. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong.
1: Welcome back. The Philadelphia Eagles battled the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 57 on Sunday night. That's happening in Glendale, Arizona. Tens of millions of people around the world are expected to watch the American football spectacular. And this weekend's matchup set to make history with two brothers facing off against each other. This is the first time that has ever happened in a Super Bowl game. So, on one hand, you have Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. On the other, you have Philadelphia Eagles center Jason Kelsey. They're going to be battling it out on opposite benches. No big deal, though, for their proud mother. She says she is rooting for both teams. Kansas City Chiefs, though, quarterback Patrick Mahomes, he's already a winner even before Sunday's big kickoff. He was named the NFL's most valuable on Thursday night. It is his second MVP title. Also an emotional Super Bowl week for Buffalo Bills safety Jamar Hamlin. Hamlin, who... You might remember suffered cardiac arrest during a game a little over a month ago. Well, since then, he has made a spectacular recovery. He made a surprise appearance at the NFL Honors Show, where the entire University of Cincinnati medical team that helped him with his recovery was honored.
8: A special thank you to everyone on this stage for everything they did for me. And thank you everyone around the country and around the world who prayed for me and hoped for me. The journey will continue.
1: Damar Hamlin they are really proving that you can be a winner both on and off the fan field. And fans around the world already placing bets on who will win this weekend's Super Bowl, helping them try their luck. Betting sites like FanDuel, where sports aficionados can wager on a wide variety of sporting events. FanDuel not stopping there. It's digital cable and satellite TV network, FanDuel TV. Also up and running 24 hours a day. FanDuel TV broadcasting live from Super Bowl Radio Row in Arizona all this week to help gear up for the big game. Amy Howe joins me now. She is the CEO of FanDuel Group. She joins me from Super Bowl Radio Row in Phoenix. Amy, thanks for being on the program today.
11: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: Look, it's a huge weekend. I myself, I'm a Philadelphia native, so you already know who I'm rooting for. But it's also a huge weekend for companies like yourself. Help us understand how monumental and critical this weekend is for gaming operators like you.
11: Oh, it's such a huge weekend. So this year is shap- shaping up to be the biggest day that FanDuel will ever have in the history of the company. We project that we'll take somewhere close to 17 million bets on the platform. That's double what we would have seen last year. And, you know, the thing that's so special about the Super Bowl is it's our it's our biggest acquisition moment of the entire year, right? We may bring half a million new customers onto the platform, and a lot of those are recreational users we may not have seen before. There'll be more women on the platform. And so it gives us an opportunity to really expose them to our industry-leading product. The, the big activity this year is around the player props, which is fun, right? It gives people an opportunity to really think about the narrative that they want to play out. And our same parlay offering is just outstanding, we think somewhere around 40% of our bets will, will likely be a same-game multi.
1: That growth, really, really incredible. $17 million. you say that's double what we saw last year, what the company saw last year. Help me understand, yeah. who were your customers? I mean, how many of these customers are sophisticated gamers? How many of these are recreational? And also, what's the mix between men and women
11: so listen, in Super Bowl, you're appealing to everybody, right? You're appealing to a very savvy, one of the early adopters, right? We're, you know, four years in after the repeal of PASPA. So there's been folks who have been betting for, for many years. But you're also, this is a great opportunity to bring some new users onto the platform. You know, historically, you do skew a bit more men, kind of 80-20. But for Super Bowl, we'll see, you know, a slightly more more uh, balanced uh, mix from a gender perspective, Um, But we're excited. It's, you know, it's an opportunity for us to really expose them to a a world-class product.
1: And part of the idea of bringing in new users, of course, is advertising, the importance, right, of advertising. And this year you guys have Gronkowski and the Kick of Destiny campaign, which is sort of a a live ad. Help me understand how that's going to work.
11: Oh, it's been so much fun. Listen, we're America's number one sports book, And so this year we wanted to make sure we really stepped it up. Rob Gronkowski has just been fantastic. So it's a Kick of Destiny and Rob is going to be kicking a field goal in the third quarter, 25-yard field goal. If he makes it, anybody who's bet $5 before the game starts will have an opportunity to win a share of the $10 million in bonus bets. So um, it's just been fantastic. He's been here at Radio Row all week, and we're really excited. And as he said, he's going to make this for America.
1: <laughs> and Amy, it's not just who will win the Super Bowl, right? I mean, as I understand it, there are hundreds of categories that you can bet on. Walk me through some of those.
11: Oh, there's hundreds. And, you know, so example, the Kelsey brothers, right? Both scoring a touchdown is one of the big, the more popular uh, player props right now. Um, You know, Mahomes uh, passing yards. Uh, One of the big bets this year is people guessing the correct score. And, you know, the 37, 34, the Philadelphia Eagles winning is prevailing as one of the big bets. I think there's 30,000 bets on on the correct score. And occasionally you can you can bet on some novelties, not in all states, but you can even bet on the coin toss right now. The money seems to be flowing to the towels. Mm -hmm. Um, So hundreds and hundreds of player props to, to bet on.
1: And Amy, because there are so many categories where people can bet because of the explosive growth of companies like yourself and online gambling, critics also warn and critics also worry that that is also fueling uh, online gambling addiction. Help me understand the responsibility of companies like yours to make sure that people are gaming responsibly.
11: Listen, it is absolutely critical. We're owned by our parent company, Flutter Entertainment. And globally, we've been a leader here, right? We have set targets that by 2026, 50% of our global customers need to be using one of our responsible gaming tools And, you know, as we look to some of the more mature markets, we know, I know as a leader that we have to build this industry the right way on the ground up. And so we're investing significant amount of money in tools. And and actually we're using the Super Bowl as a platform to do that. You know, we have Rob Gronkowski who have we have 10,000 trading cards around the city of Phoenix where you can scan a QR code, sends you directly to our responsible gaming tools. And so we're using this as a platform to make sure that we can educate on how to gamble responsibly.
1: And how do you protect against, you think about these NFL teams, think about these NBA teams. I mean, these are massive teams. These are massive organizations. How do you protect against the potential that someone who has access to, let's call it insider information, then acts on that?
11: Well, we have stringent rules around that with the leagues, with the teams within our own organizations. You know, this is obviously a, a highly regulated industry. Um, And so it's one of the most important things that we have to do is to stay vigilant on that. Um, And we have, you know, world class protections in place to make sure that we can manage that
1: the right way. Amy Howe, thanks for being on the program today. Uh, Good luck this weekend and good luck to my Philadelphia Eagles. They face off on Sunday night here Eastern. We will all be watching. Thanks, Amy Howe. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next.